This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of ag innovation, of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. Uh, those of us from more of a traditional or conventional agriculture type background can sometimes be guilty of both being outraged about urbanization and urban sprawl taking over farmland, but at the same token, sort of rolling our eyes at the thought of, of urban agriculture. And I really think it's time we give it the respect it deserves as not only a helpful way to get urbanites connected with the food system, but also as a very viable option and a piece of the future of agriculture. Fascinating interview on the show today with Henry Gordon Smith. Uh, Henry started agritecture.com in 2011 as a blog uh, covering how design of agriculture integrates with the environment around it. Since then, agritecture has turned into a full-blown uh, consulting company uh, that hosts workshops and works with clients on things like feasibility studies for urban agriculture type products. Uh, he also is a co-founder of AgTech X in New York City and uh, has also launched the Aglanta conference, which is happening in just a few weeks. If you're listening to this episode when it comes out, April of 2019, check out the Aglanta conference in, you guessed it, Atlanta. Clever little pun there. Really enjoyed this talk with Henry Gordon-Smith. I think you will too. Uh, Henry's going to start off talking about sort of how agritecture got started. Well, I grew up in big cities like Hong Kong and Tokyo, and I really wasn't connected to agriculture at all. But then when I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, I noticed that the city was really pushing forward green initiatives through their Greenest City 2020 plan. And simultaneously, I had taken my first classes in forestry and sustainability, environmental security related classes at the university. And I started looking at water wars, and I started looking at this idea of resource scarcity and I started thinking, maybe cities can play a leading role in this, and, and they should. That's where most of the people are going to be living, after all. And I started really looking at how cities have been trying to do this, and I found big gaps in that. And I also found big gaps in the discussion on the various approaches to growing food in the city. And I wanted to tell the stories of those who were doing it successfully. And that's when I started my blog, agritecture.com. And, and how old were you at that point? Yeah, so I guess I was 22. 22 years old and you're, yeah, you're kind of finding some of these big issues uh, in the world. What, uh, were you a storyteller before that or why did you take the blog route? So before I had uh, started the agritech.com blog, I was recruited to work for Royal Bank of Canada as a video blogger. And so I would kind of go around making videos about how to get the right credit card and if you should take out a mortgage and, you know, you know, meaning like with your parents and things like that. And uh, yeah, it was a really exciting experience that I got to learn media training uh, and I got to really work with some experts and professionals in the emerging blogging space. And although I was talking about something like banking, it was pretty exciting to see the response from the audience and improve that. And then I started blogging for University of British Columbia as kind of like a student life blog. 
And so for me, I had already practiced what it took to share my ideas through blog posts and video posts. Researching urban agriculture, I thought, why not just share it? It motivated me to do it consistently. I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. That's one of the benefits of blogging is when you have an audience or when you create that mechanism to share, you consistently remind yourself that you need to share. And so that forces you also to research and to learn new things. And that's a practice that has benefited me a lot. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. I mean, in very similar ways, <laughs> I, I wanted to share stories of, of ag innovation and that's um, how this this podcast was was sort of born. That's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know you, uh, you, you know, a few years later decided to get the master's in sustainability management. What, what is the, the evidence-based argument for why we should care about urban ag? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think early on in, in, in my interest in urban agriculture, I, I noticed a few things that, that led me to dive deeper into it and, and, and some of the interesting data around it. So, you know, I was looking at Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Seattle, and I was doing like an assignment in my undergraduate degree about urban agriculture and why it hadn't really taken off because people obviously liked to talk about local food, but there weren't that many urban farms and it wasn't impacting that much of the food supply in a Western city like Vancouver. And what I found was that there were wait lists for community gardens and that there were a lot of entrepreneurs that wanted to build farms but couldn't. And I started saying, well, maybe we can really learn from what's happening in other parts of the world that maybe haven't as advanced in the same way that the West has uh, economically. And so they haven't pushed agriculture out yet. So I took an online course uh, at Ryerson University, which I recommend to anybody who's exploring urban agriculture and wants to kind of do a low investment uh, education approach to it, but it's like a six-course program in environmental in, in food security and urban agriculture, and it takes a global look. And one of the things I noticed was that urban agriculture can, you know, data shows that urban agriculture can be a very smart adaptation strategy. So if we look at Havana, Cuba, um, or even Cuba overall after the blockade and I believe the 90s, you know, when they were cut off from supplies, they responded by basically instituting this policy that everyone has to grow, you know, something on their rooftop. And they were able to impact food security in a very meaningful way in a relatively short period of time. And so that, to me, was a data-driven example of how uh, urban agriculture can be an adaptation strategy, that if a certain population of people in the city know how to grow food, and if there's policies to support it, the city will be able to impact its own food security and be more independent. Then if we look globally, we can also look at the numbers that we have about 50% of population in, in Asia that's estimated to be involved in urban agriculture of some kind. We see in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia, that people are commonly growing some food on their own property, and sometimes even chickens, you know, small animal husbandry, and they're using it to barter and to trade. And this is a pretty common practice in many parts of the world, maybe not so much in the West. And that cumulative impact is estimated to be about 800 million urban farmers and about uh, 10, 10 to 15% of our global food supply. And so sure, that's not the majority of our food supply, but that's urban only. And so if we look at the areas around the city, peri-urban and, and more local agriculture, uh, you know, data suggests that we can really feed most cities a meaningful part, maybe even a quarter um, of their food supply, certainly the vast majority of their leafy greens and, and vegetable supply. You know, obviously meat and, and protein takes up a lot more space. So I think it's going to be challenging. But that's some of the data around that. If we look at some of the more recent data that's come out, and I'll have to uh, send you the link on, on the source, but, but I have it on, on our research page on agritecture. Um, there was an assessment of kind of the global uh, potential for urban agriculture and its ecosystem benefits. So its impact on reducing heat island effect, its impact on um, managing rainwater. 
its impact on on food supply and and and, and the, the resilience around that. And that's estimated at 80 to 160 billion dollar global economic opportunity, which is which is quite large. And so I think that there's the, the numbers suggest that there is a real opportunity for this, both for businesses and for cities and for society to really to really encourage this. And and actually, people want to do it as well. That is fascinating. I, I appreciate that. As as you look at the numbers going from, let's say, it's around ten percent um, being grown in in urban areas to maybe bringing it up to a quarter, as you said, might be possible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, looking at rooftops versus greenhouses versus indoor ag versus kind of more land based. You know, where are you most bullish, or where where do you see the most opportunity? And, and I know, obviously, it's it's probably all <laughs> the above. But uh, walk us through that. So, you know, one of the things that agriculture does that's, that's quite unique is we embrace the full spectrum of urban agriculture. So if you imagine a spectrum of technology, low tech being on one hand and high tech being on the other hand, high tech being ultimate control, vertical farm, controlling all the variables, indoor growing, and low tech being, you know, a very low cost community garden. There's value to everything in between as well, rooftop farms, greenhouses, everything, but there's trade-offs. So for example, on the low tech side, you're going to be impacting food access in a different way than with a vertical farm because it's going to be mostly an affordable product that that may be given away. The operation may be run by volunteers. On the high tech side, you're going to be probably impacting yield and impacting things like uh, resource efficiency in in a very different way and year round production and thus economic benefits. And then in the middle, you've got trade-offs with, for example, rooftop farms where you need to find the right roof. You know, there's, there's, there's structural considerations that can be complicated, but you also get the benefit of what's typically, you know, free or very discounted space with rooftops and you get amazing access to, to light, which is great. So it's not about one uh, approach being the right approach. It's about a comprehensive and holistic uh, methodology to think about all of these approaches as tools in the toolbox. If I'm a city and I'm planning my city, I'm going to look at medium density commercial, high density commercial, medium density residential, low density residential, and I'm going to think about the system around that, the transportation systems, where the schools are, all of that, and I'm going to plan around that, right? That's how city planners use data to plan the kinds of integrations they want to have in cities now with mixed results, but, but that's really the process. People aren't doing that with agriculture. Farms aren't planned in that way. Farms aren't planned in cities that way. And that's the vision of agritecture. That's what we want to do. We both help entrepreneurs choose which approach makes sense on the technology spectrum for their context. And that's going to be driven by what do people want to eat? You know, what's the site like? What's the climate? You know, what are the labor costs? Do we need a more automated system or do, or do we have actually low cost labor that we can benefit from? And it's really about a methodology and it's about compiling all this data together and, and saying these are, these are literally tools in our toolbox to impact food security uh, and all of that. You've talked about the uh, how, how urban ag accelerates the food, water, energy nexus. Can you explain kind of what that means? Well, if you think about it, you know, there's all kinds of sustainable technologies that are developing. You've got solar panels, you've got biodigesters, you've got, you know, new efficiency strategies around lighting, all kinds of things developing. Green infrastructure as well is, is an interesting one. But what green technology, what emerging green technology embodies the food, water, energy nexus, meaning the relationship between those resources better than urban agriculture, better than something like high-tech urban agriculture, which we actually have the energy inputs as well. I don't really think there is a better one. And so when we think about the future of cities and the way we need to improve, there's a lot of uh, people's much smarter than I am um, out there talking about how understanding that nexus and how those resources relate to each other is key to us 
achieving sustainable urban development. When we improve food, we can typically understand more about waste. When we, when we improve how we work with waste, we may understand something more about water. And so understanding those things together and how they relate to each other is really how we're going to move to a more circular economy, you know, where, our, where it's not just input, output, but it's more of a circular process. And so I think that urban agriculture is about more than just growing food. I think it's about more than just creating community and all of those benefits. I think it's actually about more than reducing heat island effect and managing rainwater. I think there's another benefit to it, which is by allowing entrepreneurs to explore this in the city and, and, and strengthen their capability to do it, we are creating the next generation of innovators that understand that food, water, energy nexus better than anyone. When you're a farmer, you're tracking those inputs. How much water am I using? You're, you, you know, in an urban area, maybe not as much in rural, but in urban areas, those resources are extremely critical. They're more, typically more expensive. They're typically, you know, have, have more serious consequences if you're not tracking those properly because you've spent more money on your land, you're spending more money on your labor. You know, the stakes are sometimes higher when, when you're in the city. And that's why sometimes we see that urban farms are actually more productive per square foot than rural farms, for example. So long story short, it's, it's really about, um, you know, accelerating sustainable urban development and all the capabilities needed to do that. And I think that that's the kind of bonus benefit of urban agriculture. And, and of course, to get all those benefits, it needs to be at the core, a sustainable um, business model or, or sustainable entity. And I want to get more into that. But before we do, I don't want to make any assumptions here. Could you could you sort of define uh, a couple terms, one being urban, sure. how you're defining urban and the other being local, how you define local? OK, yeah, that's fair. So I, I define urban as like within the city, uh, you know, limits itself where there's urban areas. So you're typically looking for areas where, you know, it's not so much suburban houses, but it's, it's, it's probably, you know, buildings where if you're still seeing buildings that are two, three stories high, then that's still the urban area. And then you have the kind of peri-urban area, which is the next area around that, where it's a little bit more um, in, in development, right? You might see more vacant plots. You might see, uh, you know, mixtures of industrial spaces, et cetera. So, you know, moving, moving beyond, let's say, 30 miles, depending on the size of the city, outside the city, you start to get peri-urban areas. And then you have local, which, which some people define as 100 miles from the city. I define it as 250 miles from the city. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to get into more the business aspect here because I think there's some misconceptions. Um, you know, one being that um, this is kind of a... Uh, urban agriculture is kind of a, a nice to have thing that sort of maybe serves a really wealthy niche. Um, and, and so talk to us about kind of the profitability of, of the sustainable business model of, of urban agriculture. I know that's a, a general category, but maybe if you have some specific examples you, you could share with us. So yeah, going back to that tech spectrum and those trade-offs, this is why it's so important you plan properly because you know, a community garden, for example, is going to cost you maybe $15 a square foot for, for even a really like a pretty nice one. And a vertical farm, you know, is going to cost you 150 to 250 or more dollars per square foot. So huge, huge differences in cost. And so when you're planning your farm, you need to really understand what's the right fit for my site and for my market and for the kind of entrepreneur that I'm going to be as well. You know, what's going to work for me? What kind do I want to raise VC money? Maybe I do want to go a high tech approach that way. Am I, am I happy with a small business that's going to have one or two sites? Maybe I should go for um, a small private uh, urban farm, uh, for-profit rather, urban farm, or even go for a nonprofit urban farm, maybe if, if, if I'm not motivated to do a for-profit business. So, you know, each of those models can work. There's, there's enough examples. Vertical farming is quite new, and we can talk about that, but there's enough examples across the spectrum, even rooftop greenhouses, rooftop uh, soil-based farms like Broken Grange, 
there's enough examples of it being successful that we, it's a matter of observing those models and applying them to you as the entrepreneur, what's going to be best fit. So the profitability is very different across the board. But I think if you're talking about a, typically a smaller business in general, a smaller farm, let's say, um, you know, like a, a thousand square foot uh, footprint vertical farm, for example, you can probably get payback within year two or year three because you're focused on a premium product because you can't really compete in the wholesale area. So your challenges are more around, can you sell enough product? Can you market that product? Can you get the top price for that? But if you can get those things, that top price, then you're going to be you know, quite profitable. If you're building a much bigger farm, you have a lot higher capex and you're more dependent on things like large wholesale agreements with supermarkets, uh, distributors, et cetera. And, and, and those can be really great because they're consistent, right? You don't have to go hit the ground selling as much once you get those contracts. It's more focused on maintaining your operation. But I think in that case, in the best case scenarios, you're looking at payback, you know, in year four uh, or, or five. For some of the really big vertical farms, for example, we're seeing year eight, you know, um, for, for payback, which is not fast money. Um, but I think that those economics on that side, because LED costs are going down, because automation is improving, so that you can automate certain tasks that, that increase the labor costs. Uh, overall understanding of how to design heating and ventilation and cooling for those systems is improving. So those economics are improved, but those are some of the ranges of economics, let's say from small, medium to large for vertical farms. And I think you can see something similar on the, on, on, on the soil-based side. I just think the payback is typically earlier because you've got, um, you've got a lot lower capex. Right. Uh, for, and, and greenhouses, you know, are, you, can, you can do a greenhouse and get payback in your three and four if you're smart about it. And are we generally talking about leafy greens here? Are there some viable models for, for other crops to be grown? So again, going back to that spectrum and the trade-offs, on, on when you're growing in soil, you have the great advantage of growing a lot more variety, depending on where you are. But, but you know, in, in, in the top part of the season, in most places, you can grow tubers, you can grow vine crops, you can grow, you know, all kinds of vegetables. Uh, you know, you can, you can grow really anything, you know, in, in that soil, as long as the, the climate is, for the period of time, the climate is appropriate. Um, but if you go more towards a rooftop, you're going to start to have now issues with, with depth and density. Right, you can't you can't go quite as deep. You're going to have a more limited, maybe um, it depends, but you could have a, a limited space because of the rooftop shape or whatever, which is going to allow you. You know, certain crops take longer to grow, so you need more space the longer the time for the crop grows because, you know, you're not going to be getting that cash flow unless you have that that space. If that makes sense, and and then if you go to the high tech side, you're you're really replacing the sun, and so your your, your options for what you can grow go down significantly. So you're doing microgreens and vertical farms. You're doing leafy green salad mixes herbs, you know, live basil, you know, things like that, chard, all of those crops, bok choy grows really well. You know, those are the crops you can go. And some people say, well, that's not going to feed the world. That's not a, you know, that's not a, a significant you know, product, but those are fresh products that people in a lot of cities eat. And, and those are fresh products that are, are typically imported. If you look at a place like New York city, those products that I just described on that latter end are imported from California and Arizona most of the year. So that's a, a market that, that, that should be disrupted. Nobody should, nobody should complain about the fact that people are trying to grow that product closer to the city. And that's a pretty large addressable market if you think about New York City. But, but as you go more high tech, um, some of those choices really uh, go down. And I think that vertical farming in the future, we're seeing a lot more crops emerge there. Uh, strawberries, people are trying other kinds of berries. Um, I've seen people try saffron. You know, people are really trying to diversify. And I think as the cost of the equipment goes down and as more entrepreneurs experiment, we're going to have a bigger variety, but still you're replacing the sun with LED lights. 
So you're paying for every single micromole that goes onto the plant. So that's always going to be more difficult to grow something like, um, you know, you're never going to grow an avocado tree economically in a vertical farm, right? Because it's a matter of edible biomass. You want to grow things that have a very high um, harvest index, the percent of the product that actually gets harvested versus the energy that went in to grow it. So lettuce has like a 98% harvest index, for example, but an avocado probably has like a 10% or 5% mm. harvest index. So, you know, those crops that have a low harvest index make sense to grow outdoor in abundant sunlight or not. And this is the kind of education I'm talking about. This is how cities and planners and foundations should be encouraging agriculture. And the fact is what we see today is a little bit of a divide between the kind of low tech, uh, what's considered the more uh, sustainable, deep green, right? Soil-based regenerative ag, yeah. that kind of category. And then the high tech category. And in fact, they should be really talking to each other because they can complement each other in the food system. And, and, and that's, that's the responsibility, I think, of policymakers and, and related uh, you know, institutions. You recently started a podcast called Locally Grown In, where you're going to various urban areas around the world and profiling kind of what's happening there, which I think is a really, really cool concept. I hope everybody checks out your show. Uh, but I'm curious, is there any is there any urban area that you can think of that maybe in, in one in one commodity in, in, or one one crop, let's say it's, it's lettuce, um, that is anywhere close to being able to supply 100% of its needs grown locally? Or, I mean, is it mostly close to that 10% number you mentioned earlier? Yeah, for something like a leafy green product, I bet if we looked at, you know, I'd be curious to look at the distribution and we'll probably do LA as an episode. Thanks for the shout out to Locally Grown In. But if you look at a place like LA, I'd be really curious to know where that product journey goes from the Salinas Valley and, and, and how it gets to LA. You know, that's pretty much local. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at a place like Italy, a lot of the product is local. Even a place like France, um, a lot of the product you consume is local. A place like the Netherlands, they grow so much locally that they export more than that. Um, if you look at a place like uh, maybe even parts of uh, Asia, Vietnam, you know, even parts of China, some of the cities there, not the big ones, but I bet some of the medium-sized cities probably have a significant portion of their leafy greens, which is a big part of their diet, grown locally. Um, if you look at you know Sydney, Australia, twenty percent um, of of their lo of their food is grown locally. Melbourne is estimated at forty percent. So there's some really incredible cities that are, that are that are doing this. The problem is is that they're all growing. So all those cities are expanding. So what we see, for example, in Auckland, New Zealand, is the city is you know Auckland's New Zealand is very very rocky and like rugged, right? So they don't have a lot of flat land, and that flat land is where you can grow some of these these crops we describe, leafy green things like that, very effectively. And so as the city's growing, they're basically urbanizing the pristine farmland that's really limited. And so you can't really replace that, <laughs> you know, unless you, unless, we were trying to encourage the city to say, well, at least make sure that all the rooftops can have farms on them, mm -hmm. you know, or change the legislation because you can have both, you know, if you're talking about something like leafy greens, you can grow that on rooftops, no problem. So, you know, I think, I think that that's the problem that I'm seeing. And that's what we want to kind of highlight in the locally grown in podcast is that every city has opportunities today for local and urban agriculture, every single city. It's about identifying where those gaps are and what's happening. So in Sydney, for example, which is our first episode, as I said, 20% of the food that's consumed is grown locally, but 90% of the leafy green and vegetable production is going to go down between now and 2030. And so the total um, projected local food production is going to go down to 6% from 20% in a very short period of time because of urbanization. Mm. Now, what, I, what we want to do with the podcast is, is inspire uh, entrepreneurs in Sydney and otherwise to say, well, first of all, in Sydney, say, well, I should grow leafy greens then because people are already buying that product and they're already buying it advertised as local. 
So it's not about creating a new customer. It's just about supplying the customer that's already consuming that product. Right. So the marketing cost should be lower and the, 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 the kind of the business case to raise money should be lower as well. So we want to really dive into the data as much as possible, but in a very kind of hopefully concise way. As you can see, I'm a very concise speaker. You haven't lost me yet, so I'm enjoying it. Keep going. <laughs> good, good, good. Thanks for paying attention. So, you know, I think, I think that's what we're really trying to do is to say, look, there are real opportunities for local agriculture and urban agriculture in these cities. Let's talk about the data and let's try and inspire more entrepreneurs to, you know, approach planning their farm business from a data-driven approach. And, and that's what it's about. Hmm. And there's real, like, if one city does this, if one city urbanizes and moves over their agriculture land, okay, not a, not a problem. We have a big food system. It's, it's done pretty amazing to feed us. Uh, but if every single major city in the world is encroaching on its farmland and reducing their, 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 their independent supply, that's, that, that's risk. That's, that's, a, that's risk for acute shocks in the system, storms, climate change. You know, all of those, th those things are going to put more pressure on the food system. We cannot assume that we're going to have an infinite supply of cheap imported product globally. Yeah, I, and I, I think a lot of us in what I would call maybe the traditional conventional um, ag type communities will, will the, you know, will throw our uh, hands up in the air and be outraged by urban sprawl, but then roll our eyes at urban ag. And, and that's kind of hypocritical, <laughs> right? You know, based on what you're, you're just saying right there. Now, are, are these the type of, uh, of problems that agritecture, the consulting side, agritecture consulting um, helps people solve as far as, you know, what should you grow? How should you grow it? You know, what are the big issues that you're attacking with your consultancy? So when agriculture began, it was just a blog and that was about five years. Then we started getting consulting requests and identified the gap that no one was advising these entrepreneurs independent of forcing them or, or selling them technology, right? Uh, and so, so we created a technology agnostic, interdisciplinary, global consulting firm. And, and that's quite niche. And honestly, we didn't know how it was going to go. But, you know, we've done about 85 projects in 41 cities, 21 countries to date. And so we're really excited about that impact. And so that's kind of been the past four and a half years. And we mostly do feasibility studies for entrepreneurs who are planning new urban farms of any kind. But now we've kind of gathered what we believe to be the world's largest database of urban agriculture models. When we work with a client, we don't only build their model, but we do various scenarios in the concept development stage. And then we store those scenarios an anonymized database that allows us to essentially speed up the concept development process the next time. So now we're trying to work with cities, and we have worked with some cities. We worked with uh, Google Sidewalk Labs in Toronto that built a smart city, and they hired us to kind of conceive of the urban ag models that would be viable. So we came up with 11 different urban farming types for that, uh, that development in downtown Toronto. Uh, we're working a little bit with Atlanta for the past three years on that. We've advised a little bit the city of Paris. Uh, Auckland, New Zealand, as I said, and New York a little bit, and we're, we're in talks with some other really exciting cities uh, around the world. But what we want to do in the future is essentially do what we call scenario analysis, and this is a data-driven strategy that's used for planning highways, it's used for military planning, it's used for city planning. We want to apply it to urban agriculture and local agriculture. So a city can hire us, and we can actually lay out these models over a city's available properties and get a lot more specific about not only the yield, but the jobs we're going to create, the carbon footprint. Let's say we do 20% vertical farms, 80% soil-based. What does that look like? Let's say we do another scenario that's 80% vertical farms, 10% soil. What does that look like? And we can analyze different goals like food equity, jobs, CO2 footprint, rainwater management. 
all of these various ecosystem benefits and, and, and economic benefits we can analyze. And that allows us to build out scenarios. And then we also look at different drivers, right? So how will autonomous vehicles impact this? How will uh, climate change impact this? So that we can come up with a scenario that's a clear plan for the city. And what's really exciting is, you know, cities, you know, I think we've driven this a little bit, but cities are waking up to this, right? Paris has a huge plan for this now, uh, annual competition. Atlanta has a lot of incentives for this. LA has a tax benefit for growing food on your, on your vacant lots. Boston has a huge policy for this. You know, all these cities are now starting to do this. I still think a lot of the plans aren't data-driven in their approach, and, and, and that's what we want to fill the gap with. So that's what we're doing more in the future. What we're also going to be doing is we're going to be digitizing access to those models so that any entrepreneur anywhere, even if they can't afford our consulting services or it's not a good fit for them necessarily, they can do kind of a DIY farm planner. And this is kind of our next move that we don't really talk about yet, but uh, talking about it here. But this is what we're working on. So when you get to the Agritecture website, you'll be able to log in and explore various tools that we're developing for you to basically plan your own farm using the, the data that we've really garnered over the past 10 years. Is it possible, uh, I guess, is it, is it realistic? It's maybe a better way to ask this question. Is it realistic for someone to say, look, I live in an urban area. I don't have any access to uh, ground or even a rooftop, but I would like to make my full-time income farming. You know, is it realistic and, and kind of what, what should somebody like that do? Well, you need some kind of land to farm. You know, you, you can't, it's hard to have a commercial farming business out of your basement or your, um, or your garage in a residential property. A lot of cities don't allow you to sell product grown on residential properties. And that's something that we hope will change in some cases, like larger, you know, affordable housing buildings. I think there should be ways to maximize the, the unused spaces on the rooftop or the basement or the vacant pro- property to grow and sell some food. But you know, what you have to do is you have to you know, do a bunch of different steps. First of all, you have to do market research, understand your market, understand what people are gonna buy, what they're gonna pay for it. And then you wanna look at the sites that would be appropriate for you to use for that, estimate the costs. So if you say, I know that people want microgreens, then you're probably looking for a low cost indoor space to grow those. And you know, that's one path you would go through. And then you need to design your farm, choose your equipment, and you need to crunch your economic model, and then you need to actually probably raise some money and, and get your space, and then you start farming. And that's kind of our feasibility study methodology in a nutshell very quickly. So you know, you're not gonna be able to be an urban farmer without some space and, and property. Um, you know, it doesn't need to be necessarily that, that big. If you go indoors, that's one of the benefits of indoors is, is we see people with 500 square feet or 1,000 square feet that have small urban farming businesses that are growing you know, mushrooms or they're growing uh, microgreens, and so there are ways to do that at a very small scale. But if you want to go soil-based, you know, you're going to need a, a, a plot. You're going to need a quarter acre, half acre, acre size uh, property to, to really have a business around it. There have been some some uh, high-profile um, urban agriculture projects that, that end up failing and probably low-profile ones too. I'm just, I happen to know from, from headlines, but uh, are there major reasons that pro- that urban agriculture projects fail? And if so, kind of what are some of the, the top reasons? Yeah, you know, most of, most urban farmers are new to agriculture. And so, you know, I think that they are attracted to it for a variety of reasons, but, but most of it is, I think, a largely an emotional uh, decision, right? They maybe saw some gap in the market, but they also think, you know, I can do something better with my life. I can do something that's changing the world. I can do something that's feeding people. You know, I can make money off doing that. And so then what we see is most of the mistakes come from some naivety about the realities of agriculture. 
the realities of the labor that it takes, the realities of the waste that can create, be created in these systems, the realities of getting land and all of that. So it really comes down to improper planning. And these are some of the most common mistakes we see in improper planning. We see um, miscalculated depreciation of equipment. That definitely relates more to the high-tech approaches. But when you're buying equipment, equipment doesn't last forever. So for example, LED lights might last 70,000, 50,000 hours, so five to seven years. So if you build your 10-year economic model and you haven't calculated replacing your lights in year five or seven, then you're going to have a very profitable business on paper. But when you actually start the business, uh, you're going to have a very surprising bill that comes later on that you probably haven't prepared for. Waste is another one. People calculate, and this is, applies to all kinds of farms, people calculate their, their, they kind of say, oh, I've got this much space, I'm going to multiply it by the yield, and that's what I'm going to grow. Um, you know, there's huge amounts of waste in the food system on every step of the way from production to transportation to consumption. But on the production side, usually a lot of that waste comes from the fact that you have a learning curve at the beginning uh, is one reason. And so you're just kind of getting up to speed. You may have a, a customer that fails or falls through or changes their mind. You know, contracts are often, you know, very subjective in this, in this industry. And, and, and if you're a small farmer, you can be left behind. Um, and so, you know, we typically recommend that clients who have never grown before start with a waste of between 30 and 40% of their product in the first year and try to account for that and reduce that waste, but, but account for that in their economics and aim to get to about a 5% wastage in year two, three, four. And I, and I think that that's, uh, that makes a big difference in your economic planning as well. Labor is hugely underestimated when it comes to urban agriculture a lot too. So, you know, labor is very fluctuating, right? You might have a pest that suddenly you need a lot more work and attention on. You might have a customer that changes their mind and suddenly you have to, you know, grow a different product or package it in a different way. It's very difficult managing a whole team when it comes to something like a perishable product. And so labor is often very um, you know, miscalculated. And so what happens is people start farms and they face all these realities and they don't have any backup funding for it and they get start to be very anxious about the struggles of it and you know they don't have the, the capability to kind of turn it around and so then they fail and we see this both with low-tech medium-tech and high-tech farms across the board so it's really really important that you know your customer it's really really important that you have spent sufficient time planning your farm because uh, agriculture is a low margin business it's not a quick money business it has a lot of uh, risks and challenges with it. It can be extremely satisfying and impactful, but certainly don't want anybody to be entering it with blind optimism. Yeah, that's a fantastic comprehensive answer and really applicable to urban farming or, or starting any business too. I think that's uh, really, really helpful information. You mentioned it's a low margin business and that that's one of the reasons that sometimes I scratch my head wondering about some of the investment money that does get poured into agriculture, mm -hmm. including urban agriculture. What From the investment community, you know, what, what opportunity are they seeing uh, that could really pay off for them? So we know that as the food system is under pressure from climate change, certain resource-related uses are, are becoming more uh, apparent. So we know we use 70% of our fresh water globally for agriculture. That's a huge, huge amount. We know that the fresh water supply is at risk. We know that population is growing. So I think a lot of investors are saying, well, that can't go on forever. If I can invest in a farming company that uses 70%, 90% less water like greenhouses, hydroponic greenhouses, and hydroponic vertical farms can achieve, then I'm investing in the future of agriculture. And even though the crops grown in those systems may be very limited now, that kind of reuse and that kind of technology of, of controlling the environment is an inevitable part of the future as we've, we've essentially destroyed um, our human habitat to the extent that we need to kind of try these extreme approaches to agriculture, unfortunately. And investors see those opportunities. 
They also see the data around arable land declining. So how are we going to feed cities if we don't have the arable land around cities anymore or even nearby cities? We're going to need to grow more per square foot. That's what attracts them to greenhouses, which grow more per square foot. That's what attracts them to vertical farms, which grow you know, magnitudes more per square foot. So you know, those are some of the drivers. We also see labor issues. So we know that you know, labor costs are rising. We know that there's a lot of issues with uh, immigrant labor for agriculture, which is common across the globe. So you know, when you go high tech and, and when you have a technological approach, your ability to analyze the data. So if I take all of my farm indoors and I invest in that, I'm obviously going to also invest in measuring things on a much more precise level. And all of that data then becomes an IP asset to the investor and the company that they invested in to then make improvements, uh, technological improvements. So maybe they're going to be seeding faster, harvesting faster, washing faster, moving food across the system faster. Essentially, they're creating a new paradigm for growing food, which is much more automated and, and is essentially part of this whole automation transformation we're seeing around the world. And I think that, that those are some of the major drivers uh, that, that gets you know, investors so excited. And and we've seen, as you said, you know, the investment, I think, gone up uh, year over year, 40% again into ag tech in some parts of the world, 300% when you look at the ag funder research. So, you know, there's, there's really uh, ongoing interest in this. And I think investors know that this is food and water when it comes down to it. And so that's not really a bubble. That's a problem that needs to be solved. And, you know, as far as vertical farming, there's been a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there's been, been four to six, you know, very visible large-scale, multi-million dollar vertical farms that have failed. And so, you know, that is concerning to any entrepreneur. And as I said before, entrepreneurs should be very careful. But I think investors, especially VC investors, are willing to take those risks as they spread their portfolio. And they're looking for one of those unicorns that's going to be the future of agriculture. And, you know, I don't necessarily think it's going to be one of them. I, as you can see by my language and, and the work we do, I think it's about democratizing the access to these emerging technologies and approaches. So I, I, I want to see more small farms and I want to see more of a distributed uh, food system, uh, distributed farming system. So, you know, I, but I think that's what's really driving it. And, and I think that's why people are so interested in it from the investment side. Yeah, it makes sense. It does. It, so if, if you're an entrepreneur or if you're an investor, if you're just generally interested in urban agriculture in general, uh, there is a fantastic event coming up in April. So uh, this episode is going to come out, I think, uh, the end of March. So you still have time. In April, there's an event coming up called Aglanta. Tell us about that, Henry. Yeah, Aglanta. Come to Aglanta, y'all. So Aglanta is an annual event that Agritecture produces in partnership with the Atlanta's office of City Office of Resilience and the Director of Urban Agriculture, one of the only, I believe still the only, Director of Urban Agriculture in any major city in the U.S. And so we want you to come down to Atlanta. We're going to have the theme of Create, Pilot, Grow. So it's all about entrepreneurship. And what you can expect is a lot of diversity and views. We're going to have high-tech farmers. We're going to have emerging technologies for farms. And we're going to have community gardens. We're going to have farms that are focused on food access and food equity. We think it's really important to have these discussions together and make sure these communities interact as much as possible. These, these two approaches to urban agriculture should not be operating separately. They need to be integrated. And that's what Aglanta is all about. So day one is a series of tours of urban farms in Atlanta. You can see what's been done. You can see how the farmers have benefited from the policies in that city. And then day two is a day-long conference with about 300 people attending. We've got a stacked set of speakers. 
So definitely go look at aglanta.org. That's aglanta.org or follow Aglanta on social media as well. And we really want to see you there. Create, pilot, grow, ideal for any entrepreneur thinking about entering the food system. Excellent. And and when we were talking earlier, I gave you some great ideas for for puns on future sites <laughs> like Seedattle like and Lettuce Angeles and uh, so if you, I'm your guy, if you need any, any conference names in the future for other locations. There were some other ones, Tim. There was yeah. others. You were good. What was it? Um, what was the one? I, I, I think there was a Gru York. Ida Bean. Was that one? What did you I, Oh, I, well, I used Seed twice. So I used Boy Seed or Seed Boy Seed. That was yeah. the good one. I thought Boy Seed was really good. Uh, as I said, last time we talked, I was talking to Chris Castro, Director of Sustainability for the City of Orlando. And he's like, let's do Ag Lando. I was like, okay, we can think of a better one than that, Chris. But That's right. <laughs> if we need a brainstorming session, let me know. But uh, before I let you go, I also want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about AgTechX because I think that's an interesting concept you've got going on. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur these days, but it's all about solving problems in the food system. And so when we consulted on the Square Roots, uh, you know, vertical farming project, Kimball Musk's Urban Agriculture Accelerator using vertical farming, shipping containers in Brooklyn, you know, I we handled the recruiting. And so we kind of advertised and promoted it to our audience. And we had 450 applicants approximately apply to basically, you know, take out a small loan and, and take out the risk of starting a vertical farm in these containers uh, in Brooklyn. And I thought that was amazing. I thought that was so exciting. And we only accepted 10. And so we started thinking about, you know, we had gotten requests from, from these kinds of people, career planners, right? Not people necessarily building farms, but people were just looking to enter the food space. And AgTechX is designed to really help them. It's a co-working space with a series of events, about 10 events a month, intro to various topics in the food system. And you can join as a community member or as a kind of a monthly member. And it's kind of like a WeWork for hydroponics and the local food system. So we'll also connect you with farms outside of the city. And it's really about planning your career. And so we have a very step-by-step uh, -step process to understanding where you're at and, and where you might fit in the food system. It's been really exciting because we've had some startups actually incubated in it, like Bon Harvest um, is one that manages uh, food waste. We've got another one like Native that's also working to manage inventory for farms, Grow Computer, which is hardware for hydroponics. Um, you know, uh, we've got a, one that's a kind of evaporative cooling solution. So it's really, really exciting to see these startups develop and they're not just about production, right? It's about the greater food system and, and there's so many opportunities uh, for people in the food system now that it's really about kind of directing the positive energy and the excitement you have in the right direction. So cool. Well, if you're wanting to get in touch with Henry to, to talk more about this stuff, you can see him at Aglanta or you could head over to the website, which is just agritexture.com. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I hope you check it out and let me know what you think. I, I love answering questions, so feel free to reach out. Thank you again to Henry for being on the show. Make sure you check out the Aglanta conference there, April 14th, 15th in Atlanta. Um, and I think this stuff is really interesting. I look forward to doing more episodes on this program about urban agriculture because, as I've said many times, I see the future of agriculture as being very much an integrated approach with several pieces to the puzzle. And I think urban agriculture has several of those pieces to the future of agriculture puzzle. Hey, thanks to those of you who've left a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, we just hit 100 ratings on iTunes, so I really appreciate those of you who've taken the time, uh, and especially those of you who've taken the time to leave uh, some comments as a review. Uh, recently had one from Benton 88 that says, great 
very informative and fun. Benton, thank you very much for leaving rating and review, and for all of you who have done so, I really do appreciate it. Uh, this show has been one of the uh, highlights of, of my professional life in the last few years, and I hope you're getting some good value out of everything we're doing here. As always, thank you for your time, for your attention, and for your interest in making the world a better place through ag innovation. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Thank you.